If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, where we will be looking at Ezra chapter 7. When I was in high school, before I was a Christian, just so you know that, I had a chemistry class, and uh, the teacher was going to share with us uh, um, some different things about different metals in the periodic table. And uh, one of the metals he wanted to kind of uh, introduce us to was a metal called potassium puride. So he said, I'll come back to the back of the room here and and gather around the sink and the range hood, and, uh, you know, we want to show you... um, potassium puride. He says, it's very volatile when it gets in contact with water. And, uh, you know, me and my friends are thinking, oh, this sounds great. Um, he went back into the, in the chemical room and he, he got out a little metal canister, uh, took off the lid and it had oil in it. And uh, inside there, he reached in with this pair of tongs and pulled out this, this block of metal that looked kind of like lead. He had a beaker in the sink uh, with some water in it, and he just cut off just a little tiny sliver off of that chunk of potassium puride and just dropped it right in the sink, or in, in the sink and the beaker there, and it just, as soon as it hit the water in the beaker, it just, poof, just blew into flames. It was like, oh man, that is good. Um, and for, for a young man who had uh, pyromaniac ambitions... Um, <laughs> I begin to think to myself, I wonder what it would be like to like throw that whole thing into a pool or a river. Uh, then came the day when the substitute teacher was there. And uh, I thought to myself, it is time to do a bigger experiment. And so I asked for the keys to the chemical room. She says, why? I said, well, we got to do some experiments. And uh, so she gave the keys and... We went there and got the potassium puride, and this time I got a big beaker, the biggest one we had, and set it in the sink and filled it up most of the way with water and uh, grabbed it out of there and carved out a chunk about as big as a marble. And uh, we dropped that baby right into the water. My buddies and I, we were crowded around this beaker to see what a big chunk would do. And when it hit the water, same reaction, just blew into this ball of flame that was blue-white that was jumping around on the top of the water in the beaker and it skidded over to the side of the beaker and it blew out the side of the beaker and it was hopping around in the bottom of the sink and, (laughs) oh, it was great. Um, And the teacher, just about the time it, it fizzled out and oxidized, the teacher saw the smoke and said, is everything okay? And we just turned around and said, everything's just fine. <laughs> and I learned an important lesson that day. And that is, some chemicals have certain reactions that are predictable. Whether it's a little piece or a big piece, The reaction is predictable. And in the Christian life, there are certain spiritual formulas, certain things that, if combined, create predictable results. And today, I want to look at a passage which gives us a formula, a formula for biblical success and specifically God's blessing on our life. If you remember your Old Testament, you probably remember that 
After Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Israel was taken away. They just had nothing but bad kings. In 722, by the Assyrians, and, you know, they were, quote, the lost tribes, even though there were a remnant of all the tribes in Judah. Judah hung in there for a little while longer because they had a few good kings. That's where, you know, Solomon and David and... Um, you know, Josiah and Hezekiah, a few good kings were there. But in 605 B.C., the Babylonians came, conquered Jerusalem, and took them captive into what is called the Babylonian exile. They took them captive in three deportations starting in 605 B.C. And in Babylon, they were enslaved for 70 years. 70 years. They were a slave there for 70 years because for 70 years they failed to obey God's law and let the lie, the, the ground lie fallow on the seventh year like they were supposed to do. And because of that, God just says, okay, what we'll do is, since you've been disobeying me for 490 years, we'll just let you um, be out of the land so you cannot work the land for 70 years and we'll just let the land lie fallow for all that time. And so off they went to Babylon. And there in Babylon, they were there for 70 years until the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. If you remember in Daniel, I think it's Daniel chapter 6, where um, it's uh, Bel... Uh, Shazer, who is the uh, the reigning monarch there in the city of Babylon, how he the handwriting comes in the wall and it's you know mine mine tickle you farson you have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting and um, that night the Medo Persian army dammed up the Euphrates went underneath the wall of Babylon and conquered the invincible city and now there was a new world power but I need you to understand some of the prophetic. Um, goodies that lead up to the context of our passage. Turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. Now Isaiah writes some 150 years before all of this happened. Isaiah is a prophet to the nobles, to the court, so to speak, in Jerusalem. He is a prophet in Judah, and he is uh, there during the reigns of a bunch of kings, uh, probably the most famous being Hezekiah. Isaiah 44, 24 and following, I just want to read this prophecy. Now, he has already prophesied that Judah will be taken captive because of their sins. And then later on in this section, he is encouraging them by reminding them that even though they will be taken captive, uh, something good will happen. Look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And it is I who says of the cities of Judah, she shall be rebuilt." And I will raise up her ruins again, and it is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and and I will make your rivers dry. Here God is saying, listen, I am all powerful. I am able to accomplish anything I want. And you know what? You are going to come back, and you will, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and re-inhabited, and the cities of Israel will be inhabited again. Well, what's interesting is at this time, they were inhabited. I mean, 
They were in Israel, and Jerusalem was inhabited, and the cities were built. But he's speaking of this future time when there is this return, implying a captivity. Then verse 28, and this is where it really gets fun. It is I who says of Cyrus. Now Cyrus will not be born for a long time. Over a hundred years. But here... He's talking about a man named Cyrus. He is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And you could think of the Jews thinking, the foundation of the temple? You mean Solomon's temple? You mean the temple's going to be destroyed? I mean, you can imagine how terrifying this would be to have a prophecy that some guy named Cyrus, who isn't even born yet, who nobody knows, nobody knows where he's coming from, who he is, is going to give the command to have Jerusalem rebuilt and the temple rebuilt. That must have been pretty scary. And they had no way of knowing what was going on here except that they were going somewhere and it was going to be bad and they were going to have to rebuild everything when they got back. Then in chapter 45, verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by my right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls Calls you by your name. Now, what's interesting here is God is saying, Listen, Cyrus, whom you aren't even born yet, but I want you to know you are going to be successful as a king because I am going to go before you. I am going to smooth out your places. I am going to help you conquer kings. I am going to give you treasure because I am the Lord and there is no other. Then he says in verse 4, For the sake of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. Now notice he keeps saying, by your name. I mean, it's one thing to make a prophecy that a king will arise. But when you say, Bill Clinton will arise, 150 years before he's even born, that's pretty good. So he says, I call you by your name and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. Cyrus was a pagan. He wasn't a worshiping Jew. He didn't even know God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And in this one prophecy, God lays out specifically that there would be a man named Cyrus, who would not only allow the people to come back, but would fund the project of the rebuilding of the cities of Judah and the temple and then re-inhabit Jerusalem. Incredible prophecy, just incredible, showing that God does in fact know history. Jeremiah, on the other hand, in Jeremiah 25 and 29, he prophesies about... Israel, um, right before they went into captivity to Babylon, that they would be there 70 years. 70 years. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles 36, which is the book right before Ezra. Right at the very end, the last chapter, last verses of the last chapter. I want to read verses 19 through 26. 
This records for us the end of the reign of the kings of Judah. This is right when they get taken captive and, the, and, and Jerusalem is destroyed. And this is the end of the end and the beginning of the beginning. Look at what he says in verse 19. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, that is Cyrus's reign, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, who said they'd be in the land 70 years, and just so happens they were in the land 70 years. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept the Sabbath until the 70 years were completed, which now we understand why it was 70 years, because he wanted the land to go fallow all those years it should have been fallow, but they didn't obey him when he, they should have. Then verse 22, now he skips ahead, After Cyrus, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, who said they'd be there 70 years, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. This is the same Cyrus that Isaiah had prophesied 150 years before. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Now what's incredible is, is Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Cyrus, after he had conquered Babylon, um, was approached by a scribe. And the scribe said, hey, you know what? You're... You are mentioned in one of the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Cyrus said, really? Well, read it to me. And when the scribe read him, read to him what Isaiah wrote, Josephus says that his heart just was changed and he committed himself to doing exactly what the prophecy said. Isn't that interesting? And so this is the context of Ezra. The people are coming back in the land. And in the first six chapters of Ezra, there is um, a focus on rebuilding the temple that was destroyed. And that's what the first six chapters of Ezra are about. And Ezra is kind of the key man, the point man that God uses to start this spiritual revival among God's people. And in chapter 7, we come to a whole different era. There is a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. The temple has been rebuilt, but the people, they need to be rebuilt. They need to have their spiritual lives rebuilt. They need to be you know, revived. They need some revival. And so what happens is, is there's this little gap during chapter 6 and 7. If you look at the white spaces there, if you look really close, you'll see it says, this is when Esther lived. No, it's not there. Um, but you can write it in there. Because this is when Esther lived. Remember, she was one of the Jews who was in captivity in Persia. But when Cyrus gave the decree to return to the land, a lot of the Jews didn't return. She was one who stayed in Persia. And the, her story is, of course, written in the book of Esther. And so in chapter 7, Ezra is now heading this second group of people coming back to 
repopulate Jerusalem. And it says, now after these things, that is, after all the things in the 60 years, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of Sarai, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and a whole bunch of other names that you could name your kids. And now at this point, we need to ask ourselves this question. Why Ezra? Why did a pagan king who didn't know God, who didn't love God, why would this pagan king allow a man who was an expert in Judaism, whose religion, Judaism, condemned him, and his idolatry, why would he allow this man to come back and lead this spiritual revival in Israel? That is a good question, isn't it? And the text says, look at verse 6, And the king granted him all he requested, which tells us that Ezra approached the king. He granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Now we know why. Because God's hand was upon Ezra. Look also at Ezra, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. It says, And he, that is Ezra, came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the fifth month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. Twice in this text, we are told why Ezra was successful. He was successful because the good hand of his God was upon him. Now the question is, what does that mean? It means this. It means, basically, this phrase, that, that God, when certain individuals obey him in a certain way, there is a predictable result. That is, they have super concentrated blessing on their life. Super blessing. Concentrated blessing. And that is what's happening here. When God's omnipotent goodness is bent towards you to bless you in your life, things are good. And Ezra, he's able to just come up to this pagan king. I mean, he's a Jew, man. His religion says, you are a pagan, you are condemned. And says, hey, can I go start Judaism back in, in Israel? Yes. Not only can you do that, take as many people as you want, not only can you do that, we'll fund it. The good hand of the Lord. And the quick question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Can we have the good hand of the Lord upon our life? Can this church, as a body of believers, Calvary Bible Church, have the good hand of the Lord upon it to bless it and cause it to prosper in this wicked environment? And more practically, what must you do and I do to have the good hand of the Lord upon our life so we can receive the maximum of God's blessing? And this is what we are going to look at today in the text before us. Notice what the text says, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Here in verse 10, we have the spiritual formula that causes a reaction of blessing from God. Each ingredient, when mixed together, will bring God's blessing upon your life. A predictable reaction will occur. 
And from this one verse, we have basically two things. One, where to prepare the formula. And two, the three ingredients in the formula. First, part of verse 10, we read where we are to prepare this formula. You must set your heart. Notice, for Ezra set his heart. The word for, again, refers directly back to the statement, for the good hand of the Lord his God was upon him. For. In other words, it's giving us the reason why God's hand was upon him. Ezra did something so that God's hand would be upon him to super bless him. And so now, it's like, okay, if Ezra did it, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we can do it, and we can get the blessing. And that's what we're after. So let's see what he did. The first thing he did is set his heart. The word set here means to fix in place, to establish, um, prepare, or arrange. It is, to, it is to organize something or arrange something or stick something somewhere in a certain direction or spot. I have a gate at my house and it doesn't latch. The reason it doesn't latch is because the post is loose. It kind of moves up and down. It's a wrought iron gate and it just doesn't move. I mean, you can grab it and move it up and down and lift up on it and it'll latch just fine. But because it's wiggling around, it never quite lines up. And that's how it is with some Christians. They're like a post that isn't fastened. It isn't set. It's moving. Their priorities are moving. Their commitments are moving. Their faithfulness is moving. And because of that, their life never lines up. And they don't receive the blessing that they could see because they're fluctuating, they're moving, they're unstable. And so in order to fix the gate, I dig around it, I hold it in place, put some quick-setting concrete in there, concrete that baby, and then it's fixed, it's set, and it always latches. And guess what? This is what Ezra did. He latched, he fixed, he set his heart. So often as Christians we think, oh, you know, God isn't blessing me, but we're sinning over here and we're sinning over here and we're sinning over here and we're not following through over here and we aren't reading our Bible, we aren't praying, we aren't going to church regularly or whatever. We're doing all these things, we're like the moving post. And our lives just aren't matched up. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Anything. So many people are frustrated because God isn't blessing them. But they aren't lining themselves up with God's word. And so, of course they aren't being blessed. Why? Because... The double-minded man, the unstable man, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, he might receive things, but he should not expect to see, see God's blessing in his life if he is not submitting to the Word of God. And notice the text tells us what Ezra said. It's not that he just fixed himself, but he fixed his heart. And we learned before that the heart is your emotions, your volitions, your will. It's everything that you are that's not physical. That's what your heart is, your mind, your thoughts, um, you know, just everything, everything you are. Ezra set his heart, fixed it, arranged it, prepared it. 
to do three important things. And what's important here is this, the Hebrew tense of this word set is causative. And what that means is Ezra caused himself to do it. You know, sometimes we think, oh yeah, that person's godly, you know. Uh, he's lucky. You know, I mean, he was just born that way. No, he caused himself to be that way. You know, they look at your children and they go, oh, you're lucky. Your children are, you know, obedient. No, we made them that way. <laughs> they don't just get that way by accident, at least not mine. <laughs> so Ezra caused or set his heart, that is, he caused himself to arrange his Hard to have three primary things that he wanted to do, and this people is what brought blessing upon his life, and it will bring blessing upon yours as well. The first thing, notice what the text says, for Ezra set his heart to, one, study the law of the Lord. The word translated study here is to seek out with care, to search out frequently. It is an active Infinitive, which means he's always searching. It's just a constant habit of his life. He was searching, studying, inquiring of God's word. This is the first thing all of us must do. The reason so many Christians are weak and ineffective for the Lord is they starve themselves spiritually. We saw that from Amos, didn't we? They starve themselves, and so they never become spiritual giants. They're just pygmies for Jesus. You know, if you were a bodybuilder, you know that real serious bodybuilders eat all the time. I mean, you have to do it. If you're going to get to be huge and muscular and lean and mean, you have to eat all the time. But you have to not just eat. You have to eat the right things all the time. Because if you don't, then you won't be lean and mean. You'll just be huge. (laughs) And in the same way, as a Christian... You need to be feeding all the time on the right things and avoid the wrong things. You're pumping in a bunch of trashy TV and magazines and books and articles and media and and stuff that is just full of worldly thoughts and worldly wisdom and worldly everything. It's going to make you spiritually out of shape. It is poison to your soul. But God's word is like protein and vitamins and minerals for the believer. It will build you up. And we saw this way back in Psalm 19. It will transform you into this lean, mean, spiritual giant. And Satan knows that if he can keep you from your Bible, he can keep you a spiritual dwarf, a pygmy, a runt for Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that way. And I know you don't want to be that way either. But you can't be sucking down a bunch of junk food and expect to be the giant. You have to make a choice. You have to set your heart to continually feed on the Word of God. Now, some people, I mean, we know this. I know if I just, you know, gave you all a test, you'd all leave here today with 100% that you need to read your Bible. But some people, they just don't know what to do. I mean, they just start reading. They end up in Leviticus. They get bogged down and never return. And they're just thinking, oh, man, you know, I I just can't handle any more fat off the lobes of the kidneys as assuming a Roman to the Lord. Um, It's just too much. You know, I don't know what to do. I'm frustrated. I want to read my Bible. I don't know how much to read. Do I read 40 chapters a night? I mean, what do I do? So here you go. I'm going to give you 10 things you can try. This is not a comprehensive list. These are just things you can try. Take them or leave them. Try them. 
One, read through the Bible in a year. You know, there's Bibles out there that uh, you just read through a year. You know, if you if you aren't real good at just, you know, putting a marker in your Bible, um, you know, you, ha- you they actually have a little mark on the margin. So you just read to the next mark. Okay, that's one way. Another way is read one chapter of Proverbs every day. Do you know how many chapters are in the book of Proverbs? 31. And whatever day of the week, like you look at the day, oh, it's the 10th. Oh, I'll read Proverbs chapter 10. I've done that a lot. I sit there and I read my Bible. What day it is? Proverbs 10. I just read that chapter. That'll get you through the book of Proverbs in a month. And if you wanted to get through the book of Psalms in a month, if you read five Psalms a day, since there's 150 Psalms, you'll get through the book of Psalms in a month. You look at the day, it's the 10th. 10 times 5, 50. Go back 5, I know this is complicated, and read up to Psalm 50. And then the next day, read Psalm 51 to 55. And the next day, whatever. And you get through Psalms. Yeah, you read through Psalms. It's a miracle. (laughs) Read five or six chapters of the same book once a day for 30 days in a row. If it's a small book, like, you know, Galatians or 1 John or something, read the whole book every day, 30 days in a row. I want you to know, you will be an expert in that book. You know, somebody will quote something, no, 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 no. That's not quite the, that's not what he's talking about there. The the text actually says, I mean, you read it and you think it's not going in, but pretty soon somebody mentions that book, man, you, you are an expert on whatever book. I mean, you just got through reading 30 times and you got it down. You may not know what it means, but man, it's in there. It's in there, and God can use it to work in your life. If it's a big book like Romans, just read the first five chapters. First five chapters. First five chapters. Read it 30 times through. Then go on to the next five chapters in Romans. And pretty soon, you will know Romans. And you think, well, God, that's going to take a long time. Not really. A couple years, you have read through the whole New Testament 30 times. And you think, well, God, that's a long time. No, it's not. Especially since some people never even read through it once. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to do. Try it. Read classic, you know, devotions or devotional. Some people like Daily Bread or, you know, they like uh, His Utmost for His Highest or Charles Spurgeon, Morning and Evening. They give you a scripture. You read the scripture. You think about it. You pray about it. You read the context. You read kind of a little commentary. It kind of motivates you. Some people love that stuff. Man, do it if it, if it works for you. Study some area of scripture that uh, you're having problems in. Like if you're having a weakness in an area, study that area. Memorize scriptures in your heart. Hide them in your heart to help you not sin against God. Or if you just have a fascination about something, study that. I mean, why study you know, the sacrificial system if you aren't interested in that? You know, do something fun. I mean, what does the Bible say about whatever you want? I think go in there, man. Search, search, search every day like Ezra did. Find out what the scriptures say. Find out all the passages that that relate to it. Study them. Find out what they mean. Another thing to do is listen to teaching tapes as you drive, as you work in the yard, as you fix your car, whatever. Just get a little Walkman or whatever and just listen to them as you're doing stuff where, you know, I mean, you're out there pulling weeds or sweeping the driveway. You know, it's just, you might as well do something. You might as well get some input, so listen to some tapes of your favorite teachers or whatever. Memorize the scriptures in their context, and I say in their context. So often we memorize scriptures, but not in their context. I tell people, if you quote a scripture to me, you better know who said it in what context. Don't you just go, oh, yes, you know, Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. What thou doest, doest quickly. 
That doesn't work. Put a little verse on the dash of your car when you're driving to work. Read it over. Read it over. Read it over until you got it down. Put it over there. If you brush your teeth, you know, stick it there by the mirror. If you put them in a glass and put it by your glass or whatever. <laughs> Alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament books. That's another one. You know, read Genesis. Read Matthew. Read, you know, Exodus. Read Mark. Read. Go back and forth. Go to a Bible study. Get involved. Get God's word in your heart. Make an effort. Set your heart to constantly study the law of the Lord. That's what the first thing you got to do. And a lot of people go, well, gosh, I just, I'm just, I just, I have a hard time doing it. You know, I just, I just don't know. You know, it's, listen, you don't find giant bodybuilders saying, oh, yeah, I didn't work out for a couple weeks. No, man, they're down at the gym. They live there. Why? Because you've got to be disciplined if you're going to be a huge muscle-bound animal. And in the same way, as a Christian, you have to be disciplined. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if you study any great godly man or woman who has ever lived, you find one common denominator. They were all very disciplined individuals. And you wonder, well, yeah, but that, that was them. I'm not very disciplined. Listen. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to discipline himself for godliness. He told him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. It makes you wonder why the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The ability to be disciplined. That comes from God. So if you are a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are equipped to be disciplined. God wants you to be disciplined. He asks you to be disciplined. And you must be disciplined. If you are having problems being disciplined, remember, it's not God's fault. He's given you everything you need. You just aren't using the resources that He has given you. Now, not only did Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, notice what the text says. He not only studied the law of the Lord, but to practice it. This is the second thing Ezra set or fixed his heart to do. Practice it, the law of the Lord. Hypocrisy is when you know what is right to do and you don't do it. I mean, what would happen to a bodybuilder if he just ate huge amounts of food and calories and thousands of days and didn't do anything? He would just blimp out. That's it. He wouldn't get lean and mean and muscular. Why? Because he has to apply the weights. And this is what obedience is. It's applying the weight. It's doing what God has called you to do. Again, the word practice here is also as an act of infinitive, which means Ezra not only caused himself or set his heart, he also was constantly searching and studying the scriptures and constantly practicing, constantly practicing. James says in James 1.22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who what? Delude or deceive themselves. You see, if you don't do what you know is right, you deceive yourself. Satan doesn't deceive you, you deceive you. Because you know what is right to do and you don't do it. Let me ask you this. Am I a fly fisherman if I never fly fish? Am I a golfer if I never golf? 
No. Just knowing that fly fishing is out there or knowing that golfing exists does not make you a golfer. And you are not practicing God's word because you know what's right to do. You are practicing obeying when you do what is right to do. When you go out there and fish, when you go out there and golf. I shouldn't have said that. You know, so often we like to just sit on the, in the bleachers and criticize all the people who are down there on the playing field. I mean, the people doing battle. We think we have the spiritual gift of criticism and complaint. That, um, you know, we're God's gift to the church to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. I mean, we've never been on the field, and we're not down there, you know, battling it out. But, man, we've got opinions, and they're strong opinions, and we make sure people know what they are. And you need to ask yourself, am I in the bleachers criticizing, or am I down there on the playing field? Am I struggling it out? You see, you are a believer, and you are part of a body, and the body needs you to function. It needs you to function. I mean, what if your eyes just thought, you know, listen, I've been seeing for you for a long time. I, I'm shutting down. Or your heart said, you know, I've been, I've been pumping for you before you were born. And I, I quit. Body wouldn't work very good. You see, when you don't serve, you cripple the body. Either a ministry isn't being done, which should be being done, or, in other instances, somebody else who is gifted in a certain area has to not do what they're supposed to do or do less of what they're supposed to do to cover for you because you aren't there. And the body suffers, and it hurts instead of everybody using their spiritual gift to minister to one another in whatever area that is. When you ask yourself, well, how do you know? I mean, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, let me tell you. First, remember that you have a spiritual gift. And when you hear God's word, don't just think to yourself, oh, I wish my friend was here. Um, you know, try not to elbow your husband too much whenever it comes. You know, see, see there, huh? this is for you. This is for you. No, no, no. When you hear God's word, you think to yourself, this is for me. And then ask yourself this, how might this truth apply to me specifically? You know, a lot of times we talk about um, application, but we never get down to implementation. There's a difference. You can leave church going, oh, I need to read my Bible, and then you go at home. But no, we need to not only say, oh, I need to read my Bible, but this is what I'm going to do. This is how I am going to implement reading my Bible. Get down to the basic things. I will act this way. Pray, and pray to God that he would help you serve in the body to discover your spiritual gift. Try and get any, do anything you want. I mean, whatever your, your desire is, that's a good place to start because a lot of times God will give you desires. You have a desire to teach or serve or pray or whatever. And then just try it. I mean, you don't have to. We aren't going to, you know, latch you and chain you. You think, well, you know, I'd like to go maybe teach children, but man, I can't commit forever. Um, it's like, hey, you don't have to commit forever. Just go try it. Serve there for a while. If you like it, 
If you are seeing fruit, and if other people see fruit, that's probably your spiritual gift or part of your spiritual gift, and do it, man. Do it with your whole heart. Be expert in that area. Excel still more in that area. And that's what it's all about, whether it's folding bulletins or serving behind the scenes or whatever it is. Find an area. So often in church, there's this strange dichotomy between the people who aren't serving, the people who are serving, that the people who are serving are going, oh, man, I need some helpers. And the people who aren't serving are thinking, well, I'd help, but I don't know where. And, you know, the problem is that the people who need the help, they don't know who to ask. That's why it is your responsibility to say, hey, I have a desire in this area, and you go find the person in charge of that ministry, or if there isn't any, then you make it from scratch and do it. Get involved in the body. Be a blessing to other people. God has given you a spiritual gift. The question is, are you using it or not? Now, the third thing Ezra set his heart to do, not only did he study the law of the Lord, not only did he practice it, He also taught his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This phrase is very significant in Hebrew. Where the first two phrases are what are called just regular active tense, you know, the boy hit the ball, active. This one here in Hebrew is called an intensive active tense. And that would be the boy just slaughtered the ball. I mean, he ripped the cover off of it. He hit it so hard. You know, instead of just killing somebody, you slaughter them and hack them up into pieces. That's what this tense is here. It is intensive, active. It's not just active. Intensive. So this tells us that while Ezra was always studying the word, while he was always practicing the word, when it came to teaching, he went ballistic. He taught it to every single person he could. He was intensely trying to teach. And you know, you don't have to be a teacher to teach the Word. I mean, you don't have to be in Sunday school class. I'm talking about being a mom and teaching your children, being a dad and teaching your children. I'm talking about teaching some guy out in the foyer there when, you know, when you talk about fellowship, we get together and we don't have much fellowship. We talk about the game. We talk about everything but Jesus and the Word. Ask somebody, so how's your walk with the Lord? And what have you been reading? What have you been studying? You know, has God been teaching anything cool? This is what he's been teaching me. And teach one another. This is what we're talking about. An intensive, active focus on sharing what God has given you. One of my favorite texts is 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul tells Timothy, And the things you which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations in that one verse. I, Paul, taught Timothy. Timothy, you find faithful men. You teach them so they can find other faithful men and teach other people. And here we are, the church is still going because faithful men have taught other faithful men who have taught other faithful men. And that is how the church works. And that's how you need to function. That's how I need to function. And you don't have to be a Sunday school teacher up here preaching to be teaching. Just share with people what you're learning. And do it intensely. Now, I want you to notice the progression here because this is important. Study, practice, teach. Study, because if you don't know, if you don't study, you don't know what to practice, do you? If you don't study, you don't know what to do. You can't practice. Study, then you do what you find out you need to do, then teach. And the reason you have to practice before you teach is because if you study and you know and you don't practice and then try and teach, you're a hypocrite and you disqualify yourself. 
Practice is what qualifies you to teach. So you practice so you can teach. You study so you can practice. And this, people, is the formula to have the good hand of the Lord upon your life. Someone said your life speaks so loud that people can't hear what you say. That's good, isn't it? People are watching you. And what do they see when they look at you? What do they see? People, you will leave here today with a formula for biblical success so that you can have the good hand of the Lord upon your life. You must fix or set your heart to study and practice and teach God's word. And in God's blessing will come upon you in superabundant fashion and upon this body as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for godly men like Ezra who set their hearts to study your word and to practice it and to teach it. Father, may each one of us be Ezra's. May we each study diligently to show ourselves approved. And after studying, may we be diligent to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then may we teach and share and witness and talk about all the things we're learning about you and your word so that we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Father, we pray this in Christ's name because we know it's his will. Amen.